I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm glad to have you listening to my books podcast, where we feature a new interview with an author each week and an interview from the archives that resonates with our contemporary theme. This week, you'll hear my conversation with debut novelist Oscar Hokia, a writer who grew up in Oklahoma in the Kiowa and Cherokee communities. During the interview, Oscar and I discovered that we're both huge fans of poet N. Scott Mamaday's. So since I interviewed Mama Day for Talking Volumes in 2021, we thought we'd bring you that conversation, too. Welcome to a special winter series of Talking Volumes. I'm Carrie Miller. I can't think of a better moment for an expansive conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Scott Mamaday. What can poetry reveal to us about enduring our continued isolation in this pandemic? Can it awaken us anew to the inequities that persist? Can it sharpen our senses to the beauty of the world around us? Can it soothe the fear and the suspicion that animates so much of our political and social debate? Mr. Mamaday writes in the introduction to his new collection of poems titled The Death of Sitting Bear, a poem is a moral statement concerning the human condition composed in verse. We're going to talk about that and a lot more. Scott Mamaday, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Kara. I'm pleased to be here. I feel like that's a rather tall order for poetry, a, a moral statement concerning the human condition. And I think too many people think of poetry as kind of quaint and quiet and serene. Um, make the case for the necessity of poetry in a rough-and-tumble world that feels like, you know, the velocity is accelerating every couple of months, that it's a place that it's hard to to get our hands around. Where does poetry fit into that? Well, I I guess I would say that uh, poetry is universal, you can write a poem about any anything, uh, as far as I know. And I, I define poetry, and I think you read the definition of poem, as a statement concerning the human condition composed in verse. And the important, uh, the important element in that definition is the word verse, because poetry is verse. It's measured as opposed to prose, say, or other kinds of writing. So that's the distinction. And, and uh, you can write about... I've, I've, I've wrote a poem not long ago about the, um, about the pandemic. And uh, so anything is possible in poetry, I think. In, in writing about the pandemic and, and, and the human condition that so many of us are experiencing in many different ways... How did you set about capturing what this feels like to so many different people, what our own internal read of it is, and then what, what, how chaotic the world seems outside with this? How do you think about coming to grips with that? Um, I feel that, uh, that it is my duty to write about something if I choose the subject of a pandemic, for example. I write about it uh, to the best of my knowledge. Take a point of view. Uh, take a point of view. I was. Uh, c- I had read something about uh, 
the discovery of a plate, a ceramic plate in London, which was very old, and it read, we are the earth. And I think it was written during the Black Plague. Mm -hmm. And so I took that as my starting point and talked about uh, the people who, who, the people of the plate, that seemed to me a, a wonderful metaphor. And so I developed the poem around that, talked about the sadness of, uh, of uh, people involved in, in, uh, in that uh, epidemic and uh, how they must have felt about it and for someone to inscribe on a plate, we are the earth. It seems to me that it might have been written by uh, a young man to his um, beloved, say, and they were talking, he was talking to her about, uh, well, the end is near, and we have to face that. And uh, this is part of uh, the agony that we, that we are living through now. So that's, that's basically the substance of the poem. What has the isolation and the solitariness of the pandemic been like for you? Are these moments when you use that kind of reality anyway to write some of your best poetry, and so this hasn't felt all that different? Or have you felt quite alone, and maybe that's been difficult to to get back to work? I felt a little uh, alone, but but uh, the, the fact of the matter is I work at home, always have, and so it's not... Uh, the isolation is probably not as obvious to me as it is to many people. Um, I, I, um, I don't get out much, but uh, then I don't have the need to get out. I, I write at home and uh, have all, everything I need here to, to write. And uh, so I'm, always in, I'm always finding inspiration in what I read or, or what I hear on, on the news and so on. So uh, I really am quite comfortable writing at home. I wondered if you feel that um, the power of your imagination, and you've said that this is the way you've worked for a long time, that the power of your yes. imagination has has changed over the years, that you find yourself in places through your imagination that that are unexpected. Well, the imagination has always been a very important part of my life, even as a child. I, I'm, I'm an only child, and so I I had to uh, uh, shift for myself much of the time, and I developed an imagination. I, uh, I imagined uh, uh, a friend, you know, I had imaginary friends, and I was uh, very fortunate in that I had a horse, and I rode over the country of, the canyon country of New Mexico for several years. I lived on the back of the horse, and my imagination took flight because I was I was uh, engaged in uh, uh, thinking of um, thinking of people I've read about. You know, Billy the Kid, for example, was a, <laughs> a hero of mine, as he is to many people who grow up in New Mexico. Uh, but he he and I rode the range together, and I wrote about him, and uh, he he uh, inspired me in many ways. And that was true of other imaginary characters as well, and imaginary places, for that matter. Sounds like wonderful I, uh, training for a poet. I think it was. I think it was very fortunate to to be uh, to be alone on many occasions as a child, and I had to, uh, you know, I had to fill the time with my imagination, and that's exactly what I did. And I sharpened it, and and over the course of years, I have become more and more interested in the 
in the imagination. And um, I define the imagination as that which enables us to see beyond reality. Mm -hmm. uh, we see the mountain, for example, there, and it is real. But we imagine the valley on the other side, and that is not real, but it is... Uh, it can be made real in the mind and we can write about it and imagine it. Sometimes I think the power of the imagination is given kind of short shrift, this idea that if you really want to understand the world, you read nonfiction. You know, fiction, poetry, that kind of thing is for people who have time for that, but serious people you know, they're, they're immersed in nonfiction. What you've just said about the imagination, of course, challenges that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think the imagination is equally important to, to the experience of reality. We, uh, we get enough of that, you know, in our daily news and so on. So we know the facts, we know what happens in the world and so on. What we don't know is what, uh, what, what possibility lies beyond beyond the news, beyond understanding the real world. Um, the imagination enables us to, to see far beyond, uh, beyond reality. And to me, that's important. I think it's important to most writers as well. Right. But uh, you know, I live a life of the mind, and uh, the imagination is a, is a very important part of that. I don't want to get away from what you said about Billy the Kid too far here, because I wanted to remember to ask you, what was it about <laughs> his story and history that was so appealing to you as a kid? Well, you know, you hear about Billy the Kid if you live in New Mexico, because this was his, uh, his uh, territory. And uh, he was a very exciting figure. He did, uh, he was involved in the most, the most, uh, uh, important escape in the history of the West from the Lincoln County Courthouse. Uh, and he lived for 90 days after that. But uh, I, I became so interested in him that I, I've read, you know, many books about him. And uh, I, I became a kind of um, aficionado. And <laughs> I, I, I've, forgotten, I've forgotten a lot of what I knew about Billy the Kid. But at one time, I knew quite a bit. And I wrote about it. I wrote about him. And I, I think of him as, a, uh, you know, he was a boy, uh, and he died very young, and uh, he he was a blazing figure in the West, and and was ex terribly exciting in his life, and uh, to hear stories about him, to read about him, that was very exciting, and so uh, he became uh, familiar to me. And I think of him not as a desperado, not as a, not as a cold-blooded killer. He was that in part, certainly. He did kill men. Um, but he was basically a boy who was looking for a home. And he never found it. He never found it. He was always on the run. And I, so he becomes a tragic figure. And uh, the, the, the cowboy who died young is a, is a staple in the West. And so I... It appealed to me as a boy. It appeals to me now, for that matter. Why? What is appealing about it now? The excitement of his life, the his character, his uh, way of looking at the world, the uh, all of the trauma that was forced upon him, the death of his friends, being killed by law people, and 
and so on. So he, he becomes to me a kind of sympathetic figure. And I know he's not that to most people, but I know more about him than most people do. So I mm. am entitled to think of him as a sympathetic character. Um, you know, when you describe those rides that you took as a kid and the way your your imagination powered those experiences, I wonder if you can imagine doing the kind of writing that you do about the subjects that you write without having had those early uh, experiences on the landscape that you were traveling. Can you imagine doing the kind of work you do if you hadn't had that? No, no. I don't think anyone can. You know, we write out of our experience. That's all we have. And uh, so I had, I had the experience of, uh, of the Wild West when I was a boy. I uh, was, was uh, fortunate to see the landscape of, uh, in the same landscape that uh, Billy the Kid saw and other people. Um, but that was a part of my experience, and there's no, there's no way to account for anything that I write that is not grounded in that experience. Mm-hmm. I've traveled over much of the world, too, and I, I, I have, um, you know, I, I, I've written about uh, Russia, for example, and Siberia and other places where I have been. And uh, those, uh, th- those experiences are invaluable to me. I can't imagine my life without them. And I think that's, I don't have a life without them, as a matter of fact. So they are there and they're real. And, um, and so they inform much of my writing. And, and you can have, you know, the experience, while it's real, can also feed the imagination. And you can impose the imagination upon a given landscape. For example, I was uh, uh, several years ago able to spend some time in Samarkand in uh, Uzbekistan. Wow. It's an ancient city, ancient city, and, and of course it uh, was exciting to me to be there. And uh, that, that's the kind of thing that you can write about, and you can write about it as a physical place of structures, houses, and so on. But beneath that, you, you start imagining uh, the life of uh, uh, Tamerlane, for example, who lived in Samarkand. And uh, then you have a whole new dimension that is available to you as a writer. It sounds very nourishing for the imagination, going yes. to these different places, but also maybe giving you a new dimension to the way you see the, the landscape that you come back to. That's right. That's exactly right. We have what we call the, an apperceptive mass, which is the totality of our experience. And uh, that mounts up. But you acquire more and more experience as you grow older. And uh, all of that is, is uh, fodder for the imagination and for the, for the writing, of, uh, for the invention of writing about it. Are there some things that you knew that you wanted to write about in your life, but you thought that will take a certain maturity, that will take a certain level of experience? I I think of this as the way that actors say, to play King Lear, you have to have accrued a lot of stage experience and life experience. And, and I wonder if it's the same for poets. I think it is. I think it is, yes. Uh, you, uh, you think of a subject and you 
you say, oh, that's, that's, that's very interesting to me. I wonder if I can write about it. And so you start, you know, building the possibility in your mind and uh, eventually you can write about it, I think, in most instances anyway. I've, that's been my experience. Are I'm there... writing something now that uh, is, uh, uh, is uh, interesting to me because I'm just into it and uh, finding out more about it. But my ancestors uh, probably came from Siberia or Asia, crossing the Bering Bridge in the period of the last Ice Age, and then migrating from the northern part of uh, what is now the United States down to the southern plains, which became their destination. And they built a life there. They acquired horses, and uh, their life was changed remarkably. And it was a very exciting life. During their golden age, they, they were uh, people of great uh, adventure and, uh, and uh, color. So I'm writing about that, and I find that it, uh, I have a blood memory, if I may put it that way. I remember things that happened before my time. I think that that's uh, something that exists in most of us, though maybe we don't know it. But uh, my grandmother, for example, could talk about places where she had never been. It's a blood memory. And I think it's passed down by means of story. For example, uh, I'm writing about the migration of the Kiowa people, and uh, I have heard stories about their migration, though I wasn't, it wasn't something that I, that I made. I didn't make the migration myself, but I have uh, information about it, and I can take my imagination and uh, torsion it so that I understand what that was in a way. And I can write it down. I think many of us would love to know how to access that blood memory because I think that makes sense to us that we carry, mm. if not the genes and the epigenetics, right? The experiences of, of our ancestors and our own DNA, yes. we carry also that, that kind of sensibility about who our ancestors were. But you sound like you are much more in touch with that than many of us are or know how well, to be. Well, I may be because, because it's something that interests me and I concentrate upon it. You know, I, I try to find out as much about the process of writing out of the blood memory uh, so that uh, it, becomes, uh, it becomes more and more familiar to me, easier in a way to do as I go along. Mm-hmm. You mentioned genes, and another word for blood memory is genetic memory. It's, it's in our blood, you know, and we can. There's more there than we know, and we can, we can collect it uh, at times if we want to. How much of that do you think is influenced by the stories that your grandmother told you, stories that she witnessed, but also that? she heard and believed, you know, she could access through this genetic memory. How do you think that's that what you perceive as this blood memory is being influenced by that? I think it's, I think there are all kinds of influences upon the blood memory. You know, it comes about, uh, uh, if you see something that uh, looks strangely familiar to you and you think, I must have been there, you know, I must have been there at some time in a previous life. Uh, I have a little, uh, I have an interesting uh, experience to tell you about. I was uh, 
in 2008 uh, going across Siberia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad through nine time zones. It's a huge mass of land. And uh, one night uh, I had a compartment to myself on the train. It was a lovely train. And uh, I, went to, I went to bed. I went to sleep. And I was awakened by the stopping of the train. And I looked out my window and there were, we had come to a little station and there were yellow lights uh, in a kind of foggy night. And it was uh, eerie looking. And uh, uh, anyway, a young man boarded the train and came to my compartment. It was a soldier. It was a very nice looking, straight young man. And I gave him the papers of entry. We had entered Mongolia. And I, I gave him the papers I had filled out in advance, the papers of uh, entry. And as I looked at him, I had a strange feeling. I thought, I know this man. And I have been here before, 30,000 years ago. And uh, so I had returned to a place of origin as far as I was concerned. It was exciting to me. Makes you wonder whether he had a sensation of that, I mean, some kind of recognition as well, but he was not as in tune with his genetic memory as you are? Probably so, <laughs> unless he was a, a writer, perhaps, or someone who did was invested in, in his own imagination. I imagine it was dull work for him collecting these papers on getting on the train and then off and filing them and so on. It wasn't nowhere, that, that wasn't exciting, but to, to me it was exciting. Right. I mean, nowhere near as dramatic and impressionable for him as it was for you. Probably not. Probably, I guess not. Yeah. Do you think that, um, you know, through epigenetics and through some of this blood memory that we're talking about, that we carry what we can think of as messages somehow from our from our ancestors, deep back into our familial history? I think so. I think we can, uh, we can understand, we can, we can be in touch with our ancestral heritage and learn from people who lived uh, generations before we did. We do. Um, yeah, they, I think they, they teach us things. Uh, I, can, I can imagine... Uh, living in the camps during that migration of the Kiowas down the Cordillera of North America. And uh, imagining living in the teepee, seeing people, you know, every day, and, and I talk to them. I talk to them, and they, they inform me with uh, uh, lessons of life. They give me information that helps me to get through things. I think that happens to all of us, though we probably don't think of it in that way. You know, that would also mean, though, that we carry the sadness and the trauma of our ancestral lines as well, doesn't it? Yes. When I think of the when I think of my ancestral heritage, I I think of the you know they acquired horses. They were great hunters and and uh, fighters. And the golden age was uh, about 100 years. And that's a very short period of time in, yeah. in the long range of history. But at the end, you know, the, their, their culture uh, fell apart. The buffalo were killed. The Sundance was prohibited. Uh, the horses were gone. And uh, 
So it was a very sad time, and that's part of the trauma that I think you're talking about. And I do experience that, yes. And I feel a sadness when I think of that. But there it was. And what do you do with it? Well, you make the most of it. You write about it if you can. And uh, it's a story. I've talked about this with with, uh, writer David Troyer, about not seeing the sadness, the trauma of Native American history as the sum total of the story to be told about Native Americans. How do you think about the way so much of Native American history is perceived? Uh, The Native American has been largely invisible. But uh, when I write about my my ancestors, I I understand uh, several things, you know, that are true, that they did live a very exciting life for a time. Their period of uh, their golden age was a time of great uh, valor and courage and excitement. And uh, they enjoyed it to the hilt, as I enjoy thinking about it myself. It's gone, but there it is. And you can't, we can't overlook it because it is a part of our experience. And at the beginning, you said often the Native American history is overlooked. What, what do you think the reason for that is? Well, the, the American Indian was uh, in the way of, of westward progress and manifest destiny. And so they were swept away and forgotten. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were overcome, they were overpowered. And uh, so they became prisoners of war. And that period of their life, the, the period following their, their great uh, golden age, um, is uh, is a story of uh, abject poverty and uh, the the killing of uh, of the spirit, the, the is marked by depression and uh, defeat. And that they have yet to overcome that. They're making great strides, but it's still there, and that is why, you know, the Native American his infant mortality is greater than the rest of the world's and. The rate of suicide is terrible, hunger, poverty. Uh, so, so we don't like to look at things like that, and we push them out of our minds. And so, the the American Indian has been overlooked in that in that sense. Um, he, he'll he'll emerge again, I'm sure, but uh, uh, for the time being, he he has a lot to overcome. This might be a good moment for a poem. Um, May I read this? Of course. All right. This is the snow mare. In my dream, a blue mare loping, pewter on a porcelain field away. There are bursts of soft commotion where her hooves drive in the drifts. And as dusk ebbs on the plain of night, she shears the web of winter And on the far side, blind side, she is no more. I behold nothing wherein the mare dissolves in memory beyond the burden of being. I feel like every one of my senses is engaged in the the visualization, the imagery that you've used. Will you tell us a bit about the conception of it? 
it's a poem about <clears throat> the loss of, uh, of someone who was very dear to me. And so I use the metaphor of the, of the mare, the, the snow mare, and the, the uh, setting of winter, which is a kind of time of, a kind of elegiac time. So it's a, it is a, an elegiac poem in my mind. And uh, I, I loved uh, to hear it. Uh, I, loved, I, I appreciate your reading it. And I was about to say, I wish I'd written that. But in fact, I did. <laughs> you did. <laughs> There's also that sense of um, deliberate, I'm, I'm sure, of this receding imagery, image that is obscured, kind of clouded as it, as it drifts away. Do I... Does that make sense, that that comes to mind? Yes, 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 exactly. The mare disappears in the fog of the, the, the scene of winter, and uh, it is no more. But you've seen it, and it was worth seeing. And it was powerful in the seeing, and memorable. Mm -hmm. You have one more selection that you would, that yeah, you would read I, for us? Wonderful. Well, I have a, I have a, I have a uh, poem here which uh, is called A Bear, and it is uh, a poem that I wrote when I was a graduate student at Stanford. And it, it is the first poem that really uh, gained attention for me. It, it was awarded the American, the Academy of American Poets Prize. And uh, it's one of which I am very proud. So it's called The Bear. The Bear. What ruse of vision escarping the wall of leaves, rending incision into countless surfaces, would cull and color his somnolence, whose old age has outworn valor, all but the fact of courage. Seen, he does not come, move, but seems forever there, dimensionless, dumb, in the windless noon's hot glare. More scarred than others these years since the trap maimed him. Pain slants his withers, drawing up the crooked limb. Then he is gone, whole, without urgency, from sight, as buzzards control imperceptibly their flight. So there's the, there's the portrait of a bear, and... Uh, as I say, it was my first success as a, as a poet. Uh, won a prize for me when I was uh, just starting out in my graduate work. And so it's an interesting... It's, I, can, I can tell you more about the poem itself, the, the construction of it. It's in syllabics. That is to say, it's five, seven lines alternating, five, seven syllables to the line. And it's uh, more or less perfect rhyme. But it's a, it's a poem that I spent a lot of time constructing, and I think it paid off the time I spent uh, writing it. Um, you said that it's a poem you're very proud of. You remember working on it. Um, is, the, is the experience of the creation of some of these poems and the memory of that sometimes as important as the poem itself. Do you know what I'm asking? The, the way you work. I think so. Yeah. I think so. It, it is not the destination, but the journey that really counts. 
So it's the writing of the poem uh, that, uh, you know, taking it step by step, syllable by syllable, that's, that's a, there's a great feeling to that if you can construct something uh, uh, of minute particles uh, and, and come up with, with a whole that is what you wanted it to be. You know, I, I think of, I think, uh, I think of, of poetry as being so, so much the uh, crown of literature that to, to have written one poem is worth doing. You know, if I if I if I could only write one poem in my life, I think it would be a great satisfaction, and I would feel that I had done what I was meant to do. So that's how I look at look at poetry. And this poem, for example, the bear, um, I spent. I, I, it seems to me that I spent a lot of time. I don't remember exactly how much time now, but I, t I was very serious about it. Clearly, because you can look at the structure of it, and you can see the various parts and how they come together, the exact rhymes, the, the invariable syllabic length of the line. And you, you can say to yourself, wow, that's, that's an intricate poem, yeah. an intricate poem. And um, to have written it is a great satisfaction. I look back on it and I say, I wrote that poem, and uh, therefore I have done something. What's marvelous about it is for as, as intricate as it is, it also sounds effortless for as much work as you must have invested in that. I'm, in some ways, um, I think we, the, the reader and the listener, you know, that, that work is obscured in maybe the best way. Does, does that make sense? I can see you laboring over that beautiful poem, but when I hear it flow from you and I think about reading it for myself and the images, it feels very, it feels very effortless. Maybe that's the mm, contradiction that's of the best poetry. Well, no, I think that's uh, that's probably the way you should feel about a, a poem that is uh, that, that that you you admire, you you take joy in reading. Yeah, I, I, as I look back, as I think back on poetry that I have admired and that has inspired me, that is the sense, that is, that is, the, that is the feeling that, that frequently comes to me. Oh, it's a wonderful poem, and it seems so, so effortless. You know, it seems to have come. I can't imagine um, uh, Wallace Stevens writing uh, The Snowman, for example, without, you know, the feeling that, oh, it just flows. It's wonderful. Everything is in place there. It, it, it happened. It must have happened automatically, easily. <laughs> right. I mean, it, that it's true. Like in in the in the finest poetry, maybe in the finest literature, there is a kind of inevitability about the story. Like it, it is inevitable that this story would have begun here, and this poem would have reached this center place and that this is how it would have culminated. But, I mean, there is a lot, you know better than I, so much labor that goes into that sense of, but this is the way the story was meant to be told. And at other times, the, uh, the story seems so spontaneous. Right. Uh, that you think well, that, that has been waiting 
there to be told. Right. I, I was lucky enough to come upon it and I tell it. But it was there. It's been there for centuries, like the Mongolian soldier in the train and, and uh, thinking that I know this man. I've seen him. I know him. I've been here before. That feeling is very spontaneous. It's, uh, you know, you, it's uh, the accumulation of something that, is, that has been around for thousands of years. You happen th- upon it and you make something of it. And and that's what I'm curious about is whether there are poems that you begin to write that feel like that, feel like they have been constructed over a long time and you are now ready to put to paper this construction that has been in your imagination and your mind for a long time. Or maybe most of the poems you write feel like that. How, how is think- that? Yeah, to some degree, most of them do feel like that. You uh, you write a poem, and uh, it's it's not easy to write a poem. A poem demands a lot of you, just by its nature, and so you put a lot of work into it. And when you're finished, you have this feeling that well, it was there, and uh, I simply arranged the words that were drifting around in the air for thousands of years. I simply arranged them in some sensical way sensible way and uh, that's what they were waiting for they were waiting for me to arrange them you know so that's the writing of a poem so what is more satisfying that a poem that feels like it has been forming for for a long time comes out easily or one that maybe as with the bear you labored over and you worked syllables and you came back to it again and again and it is and it was ready when it was ready what which one feels more gratifying as the poet i i, I think i have to say that uh, none of, no poem comes easily no poem comes easily uh, po- poetry demands a great deal of you and you when you when you write a poem, you come to the end of it. You uh, you uh, you are exhausted in a way. You understand that you've spent a lot of yourself in the process, and so there is that. And it doesn't come easily. But if it comes, if it comes well, you know. I once uh, I once had a professor who said, uh, "Write write little and write well." And that's good advice. (laughs) What does it mean? It means that you shouldn't uh, squander your your language on the page. You should think about it very carefully. You must craft it very carefully. You must fit every word into place carefully. You do that, you write little, but you write well. And that's a good motto. I, I, I give that to every student who wants to become a writer. It's good advice. Did you learn the Kiowa language uh, as a boy? Did you grow up knowing or having been taught that by your grandparents or your parents? No, the the truth of the matter is that I don't know Kiowa. I I didn't live among the Kiowas long enough to learn the language. My father was fluent, and Mm -hmm. uh, he he passed on to me a lot of, uh, especially the oral tradition of the Kiowas. He told me stories when I was very little. And uh, they made a great impression upon me. 
But I, we moved to uh, from Oklahoma, where the Kiowas are, uh, during the Depression when I was born. My parents were looking for work, and so they found it on the Navajo Reservation in in New Mexico, and we moved to Shiprock, and uh, I, and lived on the Navajo Reservation at several places for the next few years, and so uh, I actually know more Navajo than Kiowa. <laughs> really? And. Uh, yeah, and Navajo is a very difficult language uh, uh, to pronounce and uh, to speak. Uh, the, the Navajos say of it uh, that it is an endless language and that, uh, you know, you have to be a Navajo to speak it, understand it clearly. And there's something to that. But I picked up a, a I, I got it into, into my ear when I was a little boy. And so I can pronounce Navajo, which is not easy. I can pronounce uh, many of the many of the words in Navajo that most people who are not Navajo cannot, cannot speak, cannot say, cannot form in their, in their, on their tongue. Right. You want an example of that? Yeah, yeah, please. Um, the word for, for uh, coffee or whiskey, dark water, is todilhil, todilhil. Dark water, and it has Navajo has a voiceless L, and so you blow the air out on both sides of the tongue as you're saying the word todilhil. That's not easy to do, but you no. pick it up. And uh, uh, the word for a Coke machine is todilchosha bagan, and you can hear the bubbling, right. bubbling todilchosha uh, bagan means the soda pop its house. That's the that's the coke machine. Here's what I wondered <laughs> about that it is whether the rhythm of these languages, Navajo, maybe hearing your father speak Kiowa. I mean, whether mm. if you look into the way that you put syllables together and you construct a line of verse, that you can still see the influence of having heard and learned these languages as a as a young boy yeah i'm i'm not uh, i'm i'm deeply interested in language but but not uh, i i've had the experience of uh, in in graduate school for example i had to pass exams in four languages um wow it, it was just a matter of, of reading it you know you did, you don't learn conversation but you learn how to read it mm-hmm. that's that's easier and so I had French and German and Latin and uh, Spanish. But I'm not interested in language in that way. I don't, uh, I'm not interested in acquiring uh, a, a foreign language so much as I am interested in language in the abstract. Language, um, as, a, language as an invention of the mind. Um, you know, I, I, I love to think about the origin of language. How did language begin? How, did, how, how, how on earth could we have invented something so complex as language? And uh, I thought about that a lot. I still think about it. And I read uh, Lewis Thomas uh, has a book called The Fragile Species, and one of his chapters is, I think, communication. And he says, oh, I think I know how language began. 
we were living in caves. People were living in caves. They were having a hard time communicating with each other. They were grunting and groaning and uh, making signs and so on. And then one day, a neighboring tribe came over the hill to visit, and they brought their children. And suddenly, there was a critical mass of children. And the children played all day long. And at the end of that day, we had language. Wow. <laughs> and that appears to me because, you know, children learn language at an impossibly early age. Right. And they do it because they play with it. They play games with it. And they're not afraid of it. We are afraid of it as we go older. You know, mm. language is, is uh, scary. But children, you know, they pick it up easily. And I, I remember watching my children grow up and, and um, how they acquired language. And uh, it's just a fascinating thing to see. One of my one of my children came up to me one evening and said, "Daddy, is it tomorrow yet?" <laughs> and that floored me. I didn't know what to do with that. You know? <laughs> but what was going on in her mind was very exciting. Very exciting. I think part of the reason, and and I've experienced this myself, that I used to be very good with learning language. Mm. The older you get the more difficult it seems to make it stick. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder that, you know, something that used to come so naturally now takes work and that maybe my brain is not as plastic or nimble as I'd like it to be. And that difficulty of learning a different language is just a constant reminder. I, I'd, as many times as I've tried to learn Spanish – it just won't take. And I've given up because yeah. it's just a reminder that I used to have that facility and I don't anymore. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, that happens to us. I have the same experience, uh, the same, uh, you know, I, I, I used to be a great speller, for example. And yeah. now I've lost a lot of that. And I look at a word and I say, is that really how you spell it? You know, I write, write a word down and look at it and say, I think, I think I better go to the spell check for that. <laughs> but I used to not have that problem. <laughs> so it does happen as you grow older. Maybe this is, uh, uh, I've always been a good speller too, and I took pride in that. And maybe this is the way to humble us in the things that we are most prideful of. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> could be, um, yes. I wondered if we could close with a poem uh, and whether you have another selection or whether uh, I could open the book and read something that you would suggest, which which would be best, do you think? Oh, I think you should read. I can recite another very short poem. Please. No, let, let's do that. That would be wonderful. Okay. I have a poem entitled uh, The Presence, and uh, it goes like this. What... What presence in the trees does not appear? For nothing in the trees engenders fear. What vagrant presence in the trees draws near? And that's the poem. It's a scary poem. It is. It's really sinister. And you know the, the, the yeah, it's a sinister poem. And the whole, the whole poem revolves upon the word nothing. Nothing in the woods, nothing in the trees engenders fear. And I came up with an aphorism the other day that I'm very proud of. 
it goes like this. Nothing is perfect. It may be the only perfection in the universe. Heavy stuff. Oh. Yeah. You're working on that. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't want to leave without congratulating you about the award that you've received. Is it from the American Poetry Society? I think it is. Right, Jill? Yes. yes. And it's the, it's the uh, Robert Frost Medal, which is uh, very welcome, and I'm very pleased to have been awarded that prize. Congratulations, and thank you, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Well, it's really been a pleasure for me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I have, too. I wish we were doing this in person, but this is next best. Yes, yes, it's been fun. <laughs>